It's Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the websites 27east.com and sagharborexpress.com. With me is my co-host, Bill Sutton, who is managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Two terrific guests today. We have Carissa Katz, who is the managing editor at the East Hampton Star. Hey, Carissa. Hi, Joe. I'm Bill. Nice to be here. Good to have you back. And Joe Workmeister, editor at the Times Review Media Group. Hey, Joe. Hey, how's it going? Good to be back. Good to have you both here. Uh, Let's start with you, Joe. Um, Big vote uh, this week up in Riverhead as it relates to the industry of marijuana, which is something we're all going to be talking about very soon uh, on the East End. But Riverhead's sort of at the forefront, and they're the first ones, I think, to take a formal position on uh, marijuana going forward at the local level. What did they decide to do? Yeah, you know, Riverhead really has been kind of proactive in trying to figure out, you know, what direction they want to go um, here, you know, pretty quickly, the, the discussion started um, among the town board members and, um, you know, they took a few, a few steps to try to gather as much public input um, as they could through, a, you know, uh, an online survey that got a lot of responses, um, uh, in-person public hearing and uh, just other opportunities for people to, um, to speak. So, you know, for, quick overview, you know, once the state legalized um, marijuana earlier this year, um, the local municipalities, uh, counties, towns, villages have the opportunity to opt out of a a portion of of the law, which is basically whether to have on-site consumption and retail sales. And uh, those are kind of tied together. So, what just to clarify, just to clarify, Joe, having marijuana will still be legal, but the question correct. is whether or not they'll be they'll be allowing the sale and the the creation of marijuana lounges and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, you're anybody would still be able to grow the set you know number of plants at home that's you know set by the law. If you're in you know anywhere you are, um, the, the local governments can't change that. Um, so. Basically, for this to happen, um, the the government would have to pass a local law to basically opt out. And so Riverhead on Wednesday um, put up a resolution and a vote to opt out. And uh, the way the vote went was uh, three to two uh, against um, opting out. So as of now, they will not opt out. And the um, retail sales, on-site consumption, as you said, in lounges um, would be allowed as of now, um, you know, barring this coming back up uh, for another vote. Um, so, yeah. How rare is a three to two vote in Riverhead, Joe? Um, yeah, it's. I would say, I mean, this the way this particular vote went, uh, it was, I'd say that's pretty rare. You don't, um, you know, I, I, I would have to look to find another um, resolution that went with this particular vote. Uh, the way the town board is, uh, it's, a, it's a majority Republican uh, town board. So uh, the two um, the two board members who voted for opting out were the supervisor, Yvette Aguiar, and um, the newest council member, uh, Ken Rothwell, who has pretty recently earlier this year replaced uh, Jody Giglio, who went on to the state assembly. Um, so they they both voted uh, to opt out. And then uh, the one Democrat, Catherine Kent, who was also running for supervisor in November, um, she voted to um, 
against it uh, to go forward as it is. And along with uh, the two other Republicans, uh, Tim Hubbard and Frank Bayrat. And, uh, you know, it was pretty kind of heated discussion, you know, on Wednesday as you know people were kind of coming up to the, to the town board and tr- so trying to make a last ditch effort to uh, persuade a couple of those town board members to uh, opt out. Um, our, our River reporter, Tim Gannon, had done a story earlier uh, or late last week, um, just kind of, you know, one by one going to the town board members and kind of getting, you know, uh, their view of where the they would likely vote and, and pretty much came was able to uh, you know draw the conclusion that they were going to vote down the resolution by the three to vote most likely. Um, so I think people kind of already knew where this was headed. And that's why you kind of got a lot of people um, at the meeting trying to say, you know, yeah, we should. Um, the, the people who want to opt out and I'm talking about the, the two town board members and, and, and the public is that right. Is the debate mostly on moral grounds or, or what, what, what centers the debate? Yeah. I mean, there's a few reasons. I mean, you know, they pointed to, um, you know, driving while impaired saying, you know, there's not a lot of, there's not an easy way to detect whether somebody is high on marijuana, the way you have a breathalyzer for alcohol. So that's, um, it's puts uh, police in a tough position. Um, but, but that's you know, going ha- to happen if, if people are, are buying their pot in, in yeah. Southampton and driving back home to Riverhead. I mean, I, I don't know where, where you're going to see those higher numbers just if they're, well, I guess if they're, if they're using it in the town or, or whatever, in a, in a cafe. Yeah. I mean, I guess they're, you know, kind of the argument is why encourage it to have, you know, a place in Riverhead that somebody can drive to smoke up and inevitably somebody may drive home, you know, and that was one of the points um, uh, Ken Rothwell was making saying, yeah, sure. Some people are going to use an Uber or have somebody who's, you know, designated driver, but you know, eventually it's going to be some, some instances where, um, you know, somebody doesn't do that just as somebody leaves a bar and with, um, after drinking, um, you know, so and that's assume, one of it. I assume on the other side, Joe, that somewhere in the argument against opting out, it's, got to be about money right that's some of the that's some of the conversation at least yeah i mean i think they tried to make it sound like you know we're not doing this just to you know get extra revenue i think one of the bigger arguments that the um the council members who voted against the resolution opt out were trying to make was that um they would rather have the opportunity to kind of regulate um on a more local level of where um you know, it's different lounges and whatnot can be in the town and kind of um, kind of be more out ahead in that capacity um, r- rather than just, you know, opting out altogether. And and part of the, part of their reason was to just kind of try and w- what they believe was going with, with what the public wanted, um, you know, pointed to a survey that was done that showed, you know, the, the majority were, you know, against opting out. And um, I think they part of part of the, their reason was feeling a responsibility to go um, along with, you know, what the public, what they feel the public wants. Um, you know, some people argued at the town board meeting that the survey, you know, was, you know, you can't really trust what that survey said. You no know, results were maybe skewed. It got, you know, passed on to people who maybe weren't in the town, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, who, who knows for sure, you know, how much that is actually a representative of, you know, the overall town opinion. But, um, you know, that's what one argument for sure. Teresa, you know, we've had this conversation briefly uh, in Southampton, East Hampton towns. And I think Peter Van Skoyuk in um, East Hampton town seems pretty dead set 
on uh, pursuing opting out. Um, Jay Schneiderman in Southampton town seems more on the fence about which way to go. I'm curious whether Riverhead taking an action not to opt out is going to have some influence on those towns because it's, it's going to be so nearby. And, and so if, if somewhere in the back of your mind, part of your thinking about supporting opting out is that you're going to try and limit the use of marijuana. I mean, clearly there's going to be access to it very nearby. Uh, I wonder if it'll have an impact on the conversations in Southampton and East Hampton. It seems to me like it would. I mean, it, South and Riverhead in sort of opting to, to go first in this region is setting itself up as like as a test case, you know, where the other towns are certainly going to be watching how things play out in Riverhead to see, you know, are the predictions right? Or, and I think some of the things that people are predicting, it's going to be really hard to get a handle on that. And it's going to, that, that is the sort of thing it'll take probably a couple of years, you know, to, to see if the, if the things that they're worried about are going to play out or not. Um, but I, I think you're right, Joe, that um, East Hampton is, is not, seeming like they want to go with having sales and, and lounges and things like that. Um, is that, has that been your take that, that um, it's not just the supervisor it's there that, that maybe there's enough support for that on the town, on the town board there. I mean, I would guess that, but I haven't watched those discussions closely enough to, to characterize where, where they stand as a whole town board. I know Southampton did a survey, right? They put a survey out to the public asking, um, asking what they thought about it. Do you, did the results come in from that for Southampton town or is it still out there for people to comment on? Bill, I think we I, haven't I, seen the results yet. No, I haven't, I haven't seen any results. I don't think there was even early results. You um, know, what's interesting about that. I wonder if it's just going to come back split just the, you know, I think well, it's, well, a, it's a, it might. And, and I think to Joe's point in Riverhead, how representative of those surveys are, uh, you know, to the to the general public, there, there's also a timing thing that has to be considered. And we talked about this before, um, you know, so officially the towns have until December 31st to opt out. But it's a, there's a whole referendum thing involved here with 45 day. Joe, Joe, you wrote a little bit about the specifics in in, in your story, I, I think. And it's it just in order to get that referendum and to opt out by the December 31st, town boards really have to make a decision by by literally by next month. Right. Yeah, it's pretty confusing the way it works. Yeah. Is that, you know, as you said, there is the, the deadline that the state has is December 31st. Um, but the way the discussion went in Riverhead, you know, they kind of looked at it as we need to act quicker than that because we, in order, you know, if we if we vote to opt out, there you have to have this other process where um, a percentage of the uh, the population can uh, get a petition to get a referendum on the ballot that would be to, to overturn it to right. basically say to basically say we don't want this and it would right it would overturn it and. Um, so you know that's like a whole process that would take a long time. So, like, for, not, like 40, 45 days, I think you have to wait forty five days for the referendum. Right. So, so the way Riverhead looked at it was, you know, we need to do this now so that if we opt out, that this there's enough time for that to happen. Other towns or other, you know, yeah, other towns and villages have looked at it and say, well, we have until December thirty first. So we're not as worried about it yet. So it's not. I'm still not entirely clear how that plays out. If they say on. You know, the week after election day, they say, OK, we're going to vote to opt out. And then I'm not sure exactly how that happens then with this entire process. If it just 
would go on to basically the next year and then it would end up on a ballot on the on the, on the following um, November. And so it's after, after sure. a year of it being allowed. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, it, it's it's a little confusing. So, yeah, I, we'll I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of town and villages just get caught short and kind of, you know, do a almost a a pocket veto of, of deciding that they don't have time to take action. And so they just kind of let it go. Yeah, it seems like they. I would almost almost got the impression that a lot of the, the towns are just kind of like ignoring it and just hoping it just kind of goes under the radar and then they don't have to have public hearings or people are yelling at them one way or the other. And then it just sort of happens. And, and then maybe that's it. Are, yeah. <laughs> right. I wonder if there's, there's a risk to opting out though. Correct. I mean, Carissa, if, if East Hampton town, let's just for argument's sake, say that Riverhead has opted to, to not opt out. Uh, let's say Southampton town does the same. I've pointed out in the past, we have to talk about, uh, Shinnecock territory, which uh, the Shinnecock have already said that they plan to, to offer sales and they actually have a grow facility that they're that they're building um, on their territory. So if East Hampton Town were to opt out, there, there's a couple of problems there. One is that I, I think it might push the trade back underground again in East Hampton Town. And second of all, it's almost I mean, East Hampton Town would be the, you know, you would lose out on any tax revenue from sales, anything like that. And you, as Joe pointed out, you, you'd lose the ability to control at the local level what happens. Um, I feel like there is sort of a downside to opting out in a case like this, right? Yeah, it definitely seems like it, it, there is. And when um, when you were talking just a minute ago, I was thinking about the even the decision at the state level. It's, was it a decision because... Um, thoughts and feelings and studies have changed about what marijuana use means and or was it a decision that was spurred by the economics of the situation and you know it's a complicated discussion but um but i think that what really pushed the passage this year um was the fact that the revenue that that people saw the ability to get out of this and um, for, for the state, the municipalities, the county, they all stand to gain um, a lot of tax revenue out of it. So, um, yeah, the question is, do you do you want to leave that money on the table? Do you really need that money? And then you get into the whole sort of moral arguments and the and the. Um, you know, there's the moral arguments and then there's also the, the sort of substance issues that people think about. Um, but you compare substance issues that you have with uh, with marijuana to alcohol use, and it, it makes you think a lot about changing attitudes towards um, towards marijuana across the country. And you know, a lot a lot of the cynical observers out there would say that it's also about the governor needing to change the narrative uh, at at a particular moment. And to be frank with you, it worked. I mean, I think I think we stopped talking about some of the scandals around the governor and it sort of diverted attention to, to this. I also wanted to make a point, um, Joe, Riverhead's been sort of ahead of the curve on this from the start, right? I mean, it's not necessarily the municipality, but I know Riverhead was really the first in the region to, to have a medical uh, facility, a medical dis uh, distribution point, right? 
Yeah, so Col- Columbia Care has a, a medical marijuana facility in uh, River Red and Fifty Eight, and that's been there for you know a few years now, at least at least five years or so now. And um, yeah, that that was a controversy when they were coming there in the first place, and you know there were a lot of opinions on that, and that was one of the things uh, uh, Councilman Tim Hubbard referenced when when he um, uh, spoke, you know, before his vote was saying, you know, kind of looking back at all the. Um, all the things that people said when that was coming and uh, you know, a lot of things didn't necessarily pan out as bad as it, as, as some of the predictions were. And he looked, you know, was saying, Hey, look, you know, we did this, it worked out fine. You know, I, I think if we do you know, now this next step, you know, I think that'll be okay too. And um, you know, Columbia cares has a big investment in this area now too. They, you know, they have, um, we had reported, uh, I guess it's already been a couple of months about their um, uh, purchase of the Vanderwetter Van uh greenhouse area up on Sound Avenue. And, uh, you know, they're looking to, um, you know, kind of really put their uh, uh, kind of stake in the ground out here. And um, so that's going to be a potentially big facility where, you know, they'll, um, you know, be, be able to grow and, and, and have you know, a distribution center and possibly, you know, on-site um, sales, you know, at, there if, you know, everything goes forward as, as we see now. So um, it has to have, have had some role in Riverhead's decision that there's already an infrastructure in place in Riverhead. So it's a little harder to, to try and put the brakes on, I would think up there. Yeah. It's interesting that, I mean, it didn't come up a lot. They didn't, you know, nobody really referenced that specifically, but yeah, I think that probably had to be, um, you know, in the back of back of people's minds as they were thinking about it. And, and then certainly some of the people making a vote um, that, you know, you do have this, um, you know, pretty big company, you know, already here and, and, and expanding. And, um, you know, if we had opted out, you know, how does that all play into what they're trying to do and bringing, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, you know, you know, potentially you know, jobs to the area and, and whatnot and, and, and more revenue, you know, tax revenue and everything like that. I'm curious. It's also interesting too, that, you know, you mentioned the, the Shinnecock and Southampton. Um, you know, I think early on part of Riverhead's uh, uh, thinking was, well, of course, Southampton's not going to opt out because, you know, they have Shinnecock right there. And so, you know, why would we opt out if Southampton doesn't? And uh, so I thought it's kind of interesting now that Riverhead kind of took that action first before Southampton, where I guess Southampton potentially could actually still opt out. And um, kind of a game of chicken, isn't it? Everybody? Yeah, sort of. Yeah. Yeah, everybody doesn't want it, but that's. I think there will be a ripple effect of that. I want to ask you before we leave this the topic. So I, I'm curious about the impact of things and whether it whether it lives up to expectations. So marijuana is legal right now. Have you guys, as you've been out and about in the community, have you been seeing people smoking marijuana openly? Because I haven't. I haven't run into anybody smoking marijuana. You know. Um, walking down Main Street smoking marijuana it would be a legal thing to do right now. But have you seen anything like that? I haven't seen it, but I have to say that in walking around and biking around, I have smelled it a lot more. Okay. All right. But I haven't seen anybody. And I know you're not supposed, just because it's legal doesn't mean you're supposed to smoke it in your car, but I'm sure I, I definitely notice it more. I've seen and some think, smoke. I've seen some smoky windows, some smoky car windows. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, you're not supposed to drink in your car. You're not supposed right. to smoke in your car. Yeah. I've trailed some cars. But it definitely seems to be, um, 
it definitely seems to be out there more. I have yet to, to run into somebody or see somebody walking down the street. I think there's still that feeling of, I, I don't want a kid to see me or there's, you know, there's still that feeling of it being this um, underground thing that you don't, you know, you don't do in public, whether or not it's now legal to. And I think people are not entirely clear on what the law does allow. And they want to be, um, they want to be wise about how they use if they're users of marijuana. So, so. do you, do you think Joe, that there, there, that there will be kind of, um, I mean, I mean, you can't drink in public. So do you think there will be laws and regulations and, and codes that will prevent people eventually from smoking in public? I don't see a lot of people drinking in public unless they have a brown paper bag type thing. Um, I'm wondering if it'll be the same with, with marijuana. Once, once these <clears throat> cafes um, open up where you can go smoke and there's specific places to smoke, like there are bars Will it then be restricted to, you know, to in-home use or or that? Or or do you think there's going to be people walking down the street smoking a joint? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily going to be like all of a sudden you can't go out. You know, you can't walk in downtown Riverhead because everyone's, you know, smoking weed and just this huge puff of smoke, you know, inundating the downtown or everyone's high, you know, you know, those kind of doomsday sort of scenarios that, you know, I don't think is um, necessarily going to happen. You know, I think that they can potentially regulate where, you know, maybe we won't see some of these um, lounges popping up like right in the downtown, you know, maybe this some more kind of outskirt areas um, that they would go to. But again, if you kind of I, make I, it, I think so it'll you definitely, have to, I think it'll definitely be right in the middle of downtown. I, I think yeah. Cause I mean, if you kind of have it, you know, in these like sort of outskirt areas, that just makes it even more likely right. that everyone has to drive to get there. Whereas right. at least if it's downtown, you could, you know, you have people who live there, you know, people who are there by you know, potentially oh. mass transit who can just kind of do oh, their oh. thing and, and go to you know, their hotel if they're staying nearby or whatever helps um, the su- help Suffolk theater and the theater scene in downtown Riverhead anyway, if, if that's, yeah, if that yeah I am, I'm also just kind of curious what these like lounges are really even going to look like. I mean, there's, I mean, there's nothing really like that. I mean, I guess sort of like a cigar shop is kind of like that where people can yeah. go and just kind of hang out and smoke, but yeah, um, would it only be for, I mean, would it only be for people smoking like a, or would it be that they're, um, like selling edibles and things like yeah, that right on site. You just, you know, you don't really know exactly. Yeah. What. But like how much do people even need to like go somewhere to smoke? Yeah. You know, I mean, I feel, yeah. I feel like people who well, smoke are just kind of hanging out at home watching TV. About, you could say the same thing about drinking. Yeah, And it's yeah. ironic to me that, that you can't serve alcohol in these lounges. That's one of the rules. Uh, when the lounges eventually open, you won't be allowed to serve alcohol at the same time. So yeah. Um, this is it's, it's dream of money, right? Yeah, exactly. Fascinating stuff, and I mean, I think we're on the cusp of of a real change in in society in New York because of this change in law. It's going to be interesting to see how the impact rolls out locally. This is behind the headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw from the Express News Group. Uh, we publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, and the Sag Harbor Express. Bill Sutton is my co-host. He is the managing editor of the Express News Group. With us today is Carissa Katz from the East Hampton Star and Joe Workmeister from the Times Review Media Group. Um, Carissa, the big news in uh, East Hampton this week was a conversation that it's at least opening an official conversation about the future of East Hampton Airport. Can you explain 
for listeners exactly the nature of this conversation? What, what are we talking about as far as when we say the future of the airport? What really is at stake here? Well, I think that the East Hampton is sort of putting it on the table about whether the airport should be closed or not. Um, it's an option, right? It is an option. So the, East, the, the town has over the years accepted grant money from the FAA for different projects at the airport. And as part of accepting that money, they had to agree to um, have the airport open in a certain capacity. Those the, the assurances that they gave to the FAA are set to expire. So really for the town, it's on the table. Should, should this airport still operate um, the way it has for the, you know, it's, and the operations have changed quite a bit over the course of the years. So um, the question is, you know, should, should we close the airport? Um, and that is, it seems to me that that's very much on the table. Um, is that just a play to get more control over the airport so that it isn't, um, there aren't as many jets and helicopters? That's possible too. Um, explain explain that. How would, how would that, how could they leverage the threat to close the airport to, to change the nature of the airport instead? Well, I mean, in, you might say that the only way they could sort of get local control back for the airport is to close it for a period of time. Um, but and then reopen it as a, as a different kind of yeah, airport. reopen it as maybe the airport that people kind of think about when they, you know, imagine as kids going by and watching little biplanes take off and land or something. Um, I don't know how, is, is that too extreme? Is that even within the realm of the possible? I mean, the, the discussions are happening because it, um, it's a decision that the board can make. They can say, that's it, we, we're done. It's too much trouble for us. Um, they've done all these, uh, they've done studies about the economic impact and who's using the airport and how much money are they spending in town. And, um, and then they've also, they're also dealing with um, a sizable number of people who are saying, we're fed up with the noise that we hear from this airport, people from, certainly from East Hampton Town, but people from over the border in Southampton Town, Sagaponic, Noyak, um, people from Shelter Island, people from the North Fork, Mattituck. I mean, there are people protesting before the discussion at the town board's meeting on Tuesday. Um, and they were holding signs from some of the different areas that they were representing. And there was a sign out there in Mattituck says, please close the airport and, um, and Noyak and, and North Haven and Shelter Island. So it's, um, it's a discussion that is um, happening outside of the town too. Um, you know, Tommy John Schiavone from Southampton town, he was there um, to also say that, you know, my res the residents in, in our town are complaining to us about your airport. Well, there's so. A, so there's a couple of risks, though, in, involved. And so um, if you do a temporary closure, which I think is one of the things they're talking about, and then reopening it up in a, in a certain way, there's there's the chance that it would never reopen, that you would just be bogged down. The town would be bogged down in lawsuits and, and um, uh, you know, efforts just to keep it closed. And then the other risk is if you close it down, then everything just goes to Montauk airport, right? Which is a little yeah. tiny airport and you see the traffic there. And I think all those noise complaints continue and you just have it. People in Montauk don't want to see the East Hampton airport closed because they don't want the traffic there. So it, it's a, it's going to be a little bit of a game of chicken, I think. And it's, it's a little, it's a little iffy on, on what you can do. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right. Montauk is afraid. Montauk Airport is privately owned. That property is for sale. Um, Montauk residents are afraid that closing East Hampton Airport will push, especially all the helicopter traffic out there because the airport, that airport isn't large enough for some of the bigger planes that are landing. I don't think the runway is long enough for some of those bigger planes, but certainly helicopters. Um, so it's just, um, it, it seems it's, it's a big problem that, that the town has to grapple with. And I, you know, I'm interested to see how it will play out. And I do think there is, um, I do think there's will on the board to actually, to actually close the airport. Um, is that right? You think, you think it's, so I, this was my next question I was, the, I think it's possible. Certainly. Wow. And what are, there are some alternative ideas out there for the use of the airport property if it doesn't reopen as an airport, right? I mean, there's some talk about trying to turn it into uh, um, almost a park, right? Like the public access uh, type of facility. I think that's come up. And I think there have been, there's been talk about using, um, using it for solar arrays, which may be something that could happen with or without um, uh, airport activity there. Um, it's a yeah, big, it's a big property. It's a difficult choice, though, to, to eliminate uh, a major transportation hub, right? I mean, I, I think, I, you know, when it comes right down to it, it's going to be a tough call for a town board. There, there is some economic impact involved. Uh, there's a lot of money that flows through that airport. It is part of the transportation infrastructure to reach the South Fork, like it or not, Um there's a lot of people who use it that way. And I, I think proponents of the airport would point out that that's been true since the beginning. I think there's this concept of the airport uh, that, oh, it started out as just for, you know, afternoon flyers to, who like to take their small planes up. But no, that, that airport actually was a transportation hub really from the earliest days when it opened, I believe, right? Sure. Yeah, I think the fact is that that air traffic, just like traffic on our roads has increased dramatically over the years. So it may have been a major transportation hub when it opened, but you know, say look back at the 60s, we didn't have the kind of road traffic or the kind of air traffic that we have today. Um, so that changes a lot what the impact is on the on the neighbors and neighbors in the larger sense, you know, not just people who live right around it in say Wainscott or or Sagaponic, but but the neighbors in a far-reaching area. Bill, has there been, to, oh, go ahead, Joe. I was just going to ask, has there been any effort or is it even possible to kind of restrict how many flights can come in on a given day and say, you know, this X number that will allow in a day and that's just kind of it. If you don't make the cut, then you can't come in that day. There have been some efforts. There were efforts at, um, at curfews and things like that. I, I believe that some of that were overturned um, in court. So and that was something. related to being part of the FAA system, right? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, I mean, the so, FAA um, said, said no to a lot of those restrictions and overturned okay. a lot of those restrictions. There's a little bit of a sense of we tried this, we tried that, we tried to do it this way, that didn't work. And that's where I think there, what Joe uh, Shaw, you were talking about a little bit of a game of chicken. And I think that's where it comes in. So we, we couldn't do, we couldn't enact any uh, restrictions in another way. So maybe we should just not try to re restrict anything. We should just close it all together. How would that be to the people who are pro airport? And that 
maybe that brings a little more, um, you know, the bigger guns to the table, I guess, um, to mix my metaphors. (laughs) (laughs) To try to get... To try to encourage some kind of compromise between between the two sides. It seemed like a lot of the arguments were the same, the same arguments that you've just been hearing for the last few years, pro pro and con. Um, yeah. I did, and just just because we're, we're taping this show on Friday and we're in the middle of a, a tropical storm, and I did want to mention that there was one, uh, you know, one person at the at the hearing um, who was a senior flight officer with the Civil Air Patrol who noted that. In, in times of emergency, that, that airport um, can certainly be useful for um, search and rescue missions and, and disaster response. And if you close it, um, you know, then then you, ha- you don't have that anymore. And I think that was um, certainly not a critical point, but an important point to note. Yeah, one area where um, there even people who would like to see it closed because of the noise I think there are many people who favor it being open as a place for for emergency response. Um, I don't think there are many people who who want to see that option go away. Um, it's it's just the the traffic the rest of the time that's grating on them. I'm intrigued too, Bill. You mentioned that that the concern is that it'll push more traffic to Montauk, but there's also the helipad in Southampton Village. Um, and what's even more intriguing to me is the the idea that if you were to close East Hampton Airport, there's a lot more seaplanes involved now. Um, and I wonder if you know that might turn into sort of a lot of little wildcat places where seaplanes will start to land and, and let let passengers out. And you know, there's a lot of wealthy people out here who may put in private helipads, and you may sort of lose control of of the air traffic. It may not go away; it just may find new places um, to find it. It's, it's a very fascinating, uh, conversation. And, and Carissa, do we have any idea of the time frame? Uh, the, the FAA, uh, the connection with the FAA expires in September, I believe, right? September. Yeah. And I just want to note what you were saying before about the seaplanes earlier, um, this year, I think it was it kind of all blurs together. It was at the end of last year. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but the, the town actually banned the, um, seaplane landings in, uh, waters under town jurisdiction and also um, also enacted restrictions on helicopters um, okay. it, landing on, uh, I think, landing on private property. So there, those two things happened at the same time um, it, earlier. So they did get ahead of it a little they bit. They tried to get ahead of that seaplane issue. Um, and interesting would be to look at where now are seaplanes allowed to land and what's the activity yeah. like. In those that, that, that being said, Joe, you're, you're right. There are a bunch of people who want to come out here um, and they don't want to drive and face the traffic, which we could have another discussion about. But um, they're going to find a way one way or another. And, and I think you're, you're right. With the airport open, at least you have some some control, albeit maybe not as much control as you like. I think that's part of the conversation. It's going to, this conversation just started really, and it's going to continue now for uh, the foreseeable future till there's a decision made. So we'll keep a close eye on that, all of us, I'm sure. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIW-FM. I'm Joe Shaw. Uh, from the Express News Group. My co-host is Bill Sutton of the Express News Group. Our guests today, Carissa Katz from the East Hampton Star and Joe Berkmeister from the Times Review Media Group. Joe, you had a story this week on Eastern Long Island Hospital. And, uh, you know, they are a, a center for dealing with addiction. 
Um, and they're doing a new study on opioid addiction, which is a problem that really got worse during the pandemic from what I've read on uh, some of the studies on a national basis. What's the nature of the study that uh, Eastern Long Island Hospital is going to be doing? Yeah, you know, just kind of talking about the epidemic in general. I mean, you know, our papers have done, you know, I tried to do a lot of reporting on on this, you know, a, a couple of years ago. And, you know, once the pandemic hit, you, you know, it sort of went on the back burner. You just kind of, you know, kind of forgot that it was there, so to speak. And um, as you said, it, you know, it, it has been continuing and, and possibly gotten worse at times with people struggling and, um, you know, turning to, to, to drugs at different times. So, Oh, at, at Stony Brook uh, Eastern Long Island Hospital, they have the, the Quanticut facility. It's been there for a long time, um, and, and they do great work um, with uh, addiction treatment. And um, they also have the new, uh, fairly new facility in Riverhead um, for outpatient services that opened in late 2019, um, an expansion of their uh, prior facility just to meet the growing, uh, you know, demand that they, that they had. And um so um, what they're doing now is they're in part of a, a national study on um, on a drug called Vivitrol, which is um, essentially a brand name for nal naltrexone, which is uh, a drug that's been used um, you know for a lo long time in, in, in treatment for um, uh, people with opioid addiction or even alcohol. Um, it's also part of like Narcan when you get um, when they use that to kind of revive someone who has an overdose. Um, so uh, essentially what Vivitrol does, it, um, it basically kind of binds to the opioid um, receptors in the brain and kind of eliminates um, that, um, that high that somebody would have. And um, it, it's, it's a pretty powerful um, you know, drug and part of the treatment for people uh, who, who are struggling with addiction. And, uh, you know, it can be great as part of an overall treatment plan. Um, part of the, the problem with it, though, is that in order to um, begin administering it, the, the Vivitrol, it's actually a shot that they get, and, and that lasts for four, four weeks a month. And um, But before they can um, start to use that, they have to be, the, the patient has to be off their, whatever they were using um, for at least seven days, uh, possibly 10 days to 14 days which for anyone, um, you know, struggling with addiction, that's a, that's a long time. And even if they're in, um, in, in an inpatient setting at the, you know, at the facility in Greenport, you know, after three or four days, they may just say, you know what, you know, I don't want to wait. I mean, I'm done and leave and they don't get to that point. Um, so essentially what this study is doing is trying to see if they can shorten that window of time and start to administer it earlier on after um, I think about two days. And how they would do that is by giving a very, very small uh, dose first. Um, so much so that the, the Dr. Lloyd Simon, who was explaining it, was saying, you know, they don't even, I think it would be like one milligram, which they, they don't even have pills that are that small. So they have to kind of go through, you know, special pharmacy to get it that way. And um, so th they would start off with that very small amount, then kind of increase the dose over a couple of days before they can get to where they would normally administer the shot for the full dose. And um, so this is a national study. They're one of six locations in the country that are going to take part in this. And it's going to be a long time. About, I think it's set up for about 90 weeks. And, um, you know, they're you know, hopeful and optimistic that you know, this could be a, a little bit of a, a breakthrough and, and, and help and kind of advance uh, the, the, the treatment and, you know, get people um, 
the ability to, um, you know, start getting this drug a little sooner than, than they otherwise would. You know, what's so fascinating about that to me is that these pleasure receptors in the brain are the battleground here. And as my understanding about opioid addiction, one of the things that's so insidious about opioids is that they, they go to these pleasure receptors, they cover them, and they essentially won't allow them to take, you, you can't get pleasure in any other way except from more opioids that that that's why people people who get into the opioid addiction cycle start to lose interest in in everything the right. only thing that that hits those pleasure centers is this is is the opioids so this drug vivitrol sounds like it does just the opposite it blocks the opioids from taking over those pleasure centers and and that seems but it's fascinating to me that the battle in this in this in this battle with opioids is at the brain receptor level we have to we have to fight for that real estate essentially to try and to try and gain on this yeah it's pretty amazing one of the one of the risks of this particular drug is as the uh, dr simon was explaining it is it, after that um you know period of time let's say you know the month goes by um the, the person sort of loses that tolerance that they had built up toward the drug. So say, for example, if somebody had been using say 10 bags of heroin and then um, they go back to doing what they had originally been doing, uh, there's extremely high risk of overdosing almost right away because they have lost that tolerance that they built up. So there's, you know, they have to be very carefully kind of, uh, you know, monitored as, um, as they're, you know, you know, going forward, because you know, as with any addiction, there's always a chance, you know, somebody could uh, relapse. And then, you know, as I said, if they go back to kind of thinking that they can, you know, start right up with what they had been doing, um, you know, that that's a, a really high risk of uh, something bad happening. And, um, you know, so, the, you know, with any, any drug, you know, there's no one simple solution that, you know, can kind of solve uh, uh, somebody who's struggling with addiction. You know, it has to be a lot of different things kind of working together. And, um, you know, this is, you know, one kind of one part of that. That sounds like a really great tool. I mean, I mean, the longer that you can get somebody, you know, clean and clean and sober, the, that builds on itself, um, you know, as well as, as, as addiction does. And so if you can add a couple of weeks, if you can add a month and two months or whatever, then, then with all the other tools combined, then they can build that hopefully into a, a lasting sobriety. And sounds like, a yeah. And I, th I think the way the study works is they hoping they're hoping to get people through, uh, over three months. Um, so they would get, you know, a couple of the Vivitrol shots or over a couple months. And then, um, so, you know, they don't have any, uh, any data yet to kind of really look at it. You know, the, the way it's kind of done is um, over the over the six different places, um, um, some are using what they call the standard method and some are using what they call the SWIFT. And the SWIFT is is essentially this new um, new method. So um, the other, other places that are using the standard, you know, kind of as they normally would administer the drug as sort of... Um, you know, kind of a control to, to gauge, you know, to like, sort of compare, I guess, um, the results as they start looking at, at data. So at, at um, the Greenport facility, they haven't implemented, you know, this um, uh, new administered uh, method yet, um, you know, but once once they kind of get that call, then, then they, they would start um, doing that. And it's a, it's a long process for somebody to uh, be 
you know, okayed into this uh, study. You know, there's a lot of education that has to go into it. People understand the risks. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's, it's not, not something that somebody's just going to walk in off the street and then they just do it to them. And um, you know, one of the, I thought it was actually interesting. They said they actually um, would administer or would give a, the patient a test to kind of see th that they understood everything that was sort of explained to them. And then if they don't, you know, pass as, you know, they feel appropriate enough, they would you know, re-educate re again and, and kind of go mm. back and then try to, you know, get them to further, you know, make sure that they know, you know, kind of what they're getting into and before you they, a, before they start. Informed commitment, basically. You know, it's, right, it's yeah. an opportunity for us to take a, a second and just give a shout out to Eastern Long Island Hospital in Greenport. I feel like it often gets forgotten about because it's one of the smaller hospitals in the region. But I know when Stony Brook was setting up its system, uh, they were thrilled to be able to add Eastern Long Island Hospital to, to their system because of the great work that they do on addiction. I mean, they really are a regional um, focal point for, for dealing with this issue. And, and, and they're one of the, you know, they do just do amazing work over there. Don't they, Joe? I mean, I think it flies under the radar a lot because it's in Greenport. It's a, it's a small facility, but what they're doing there is really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. As part of the Stony Brook medicine network. Now, you know, this is the place uh, that's kind of leading that effort, for, you know, for that larger uh, medical network, you know, which is you know pretty amazing. And, and I don't think they would have necessarily gotten, uh, a part of this study in particular without that Stony Brook medicine connection. Um, you know, that's kind of where, where, where it, uh, originated, you know, through those connections. And, um, so, yeah, I mean, I think Stony Brook, uh, is definitely, you know, excited to have that Eastern Long Island hospital connection with, with Quanticut and, um, and, you know, as I said before, they have the new outpatient facility in, in Riverhead and that's been, uh, been, been, you know, getting a lot of people in, in there and, you know, they, they had a prior facility there and kind of saw the need to expand. And I think by having, you know, that Stony Brook uh, uh, back in, you know, made it easier to them for them to be able to, you know, expand to get a new facility. And that, you know, I don't know if that necessarily would have happened without Stony Brook back in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and it's a problem. I think we talked about it, that the pandemic kind of pushed it off the radar a little bit. We, we did uh, our East end media project, uh, all of our newspapers joined together to work on this just a couple of years ago. And as you said, the pandemic sort of pushed it off the headlines, but it's still, I think the studies have shown that the problem actually got a little bit worse during the pandemic for obvious reasons. And uh, this is still something we need to pay very close attention to. Bill, we, we had a story this week too. We have a, a little time here to talk about um, a story we did that talks about one of the maybe um, something that you might not think about as far as an impact of the pandemic, but something that we're starting to see now. And that is that uh, some of the folks locally who are focused on breast health say that because the pandemic pushed off a lot of screenings, uh, women were not able to go get mammograms. The, some of the screenings were, were postponed. It was a little harder to get to the hospital and keep those appointments. Uh, they are starting to, to be concerned that they are seeing some diagnoses of cancers that are a little more serious now, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a little, a little disturbing, a little scary. Um, so, so in the story, uh, Michelle Michelle Turing did a great story on this. Um, the National Breast and Cervical Cancer Early Detection Program actually saw a nearly ninety percent decline in breast cancer screenings um during during the the heart of the of the lockdown and, and the pandemic and, and the wow 
which is an enormous number. It's, I guess, understandable. I think, you know, a lot of hospitals and medical centers had had um, turned their attention to treating the pandemic and, and all that. And people were afraid to, to go out um, and to go, you know, do regular, you know, medical checkups. Um, but the problem with that is, is that now that they are doing screenings, <clears throat> they're finding that, um, that the cancers that they are finding are in advanced stages from from where they would have been found, you know, during an early detection um, method, um, which is a little a little scarier. You know, hopefully they get get treated. Um, Michelle talked to um, Dr. Edna Kappenhaas, um, who who just she, um, who, who she's just, at the Ellen Ellen Hermanson Breast Center. Right. Uh, and just just, just describe those results as 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 striking. Um, so, you know, um, we're, we're hoping that, um, you know, that that the story will will help people realize that it's time to uh, if they haven't already get back and see your regular doctors and, and do those screenings that you would normally do and, you know, and check things out and, and not put things off any longer. Carissa, I, I, this is one of those hidden impacts of the pandemic, and I feel like we're going to be feeling ripple effects from the pandemic for years. And uh, this is one that that really has the potential to, to have some health fallout. Oh, absolutely. We have a columnist, Dr. Joshua Potter, who is with the um, Stony Brook Medicine System with um, with Meeting House Lane Medical, and. Um, he has written a couple of times about what, you know, people's delayed um, seeking of their, you know, medical checkups and um, just not following. And, uh, and Cole, Cole uh, had to chime in on the topic. Here. <laughs> for, you know, breast health screening for sure, but screenings for a lot of things or just going to your doctor about, um, you know, that you feel this ache, you have, you have this issue and, without that regular attention. I mean, I, I did the same thing. I didn't want to go to a lot of my regular doctors during the early days of the pandemic. I didn't feel like going into a medical office and, and that's where people approached it, but that let things like, um, you know, breast health all fall under the radar for a little bit too long. So you're right that now people are going in and that they're at more advanced stages and they, and they require more treatment and it's, and it's also the, the facilities, I think you probably addressed this in your article, which I haven't had a chance to read yet, but um, they're also overwhelmed with people trying to make up for the time that they lost making their yeah, appointments. And, you know, it takes, it, it, it takes, you know, a month, more than a month to, to get in for a screening at, uh, at the Southampton facility because people have waited for so long. So they're, they're really backed up. The frustrating thing, too, is that uh, South, Stony Brook Southampton Hospital has built a really terrific program to, of outreach and, and getting uh, women in particular, when it comes to breast health, getting regular screenings. And they've been working on that for years and years, and they really have a great program. But the pandemic is, you know, was unprecedented and it had that kind of impact. And it's, it's a shame um, that we're starting to see what that may mean. Uh, at least in the short and middle term for some women. Fortunately, I think still it's a, there's time and early detection is so important when it comes to breast health. So uh, as you say, uh, there's time still to get out there and get these screens and get caught up on them. Um, but 
But and, and the, East End, the East End is very lucky too, and there's just a lot of support organizations um, for for women and, and regarding um, you know health issues and and all that that can um, that can help people get get to those screenings and um, you know and support them if there's a diagnosis. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely. You guys did the article because I do think people need to be reminded to you know get back on their schedules with all of these things and, um, and to go get screened and, and, you know, we, we let everything slide during the worst days of the pandemic, but now we need to pay attention to the little health issues and that can turn into big health issues and to keep on top of all of those things. These are the hidden, the hidden impacts of the pandemic that I still feel like we're going to be dealing with for some time now. So another terrific conversation guys. Uh, this uh, this was a lot of fun. Uh, I want to thank our two panelists today, uh, Carissa Katz from the East Hampton Star. Thank you, Carissa. Thank you for having me. And Joe Workmeister from the Times Review Media Group. You guys cover Riverhead and the North Fork and Shelter Island. Thank you uh, for taking the time this morning. Absolutely. Always, uh, always a pleasure. And Bill Sutton, my co-host, as always, thank you for being here. What a great show, guys. Thanks a lot. Yeah, this was a lot of fun today. Uh, behind the headlines on WLIWFM, I'm Joe Shaw uh, from the Express News Group. Uh, we will be back again next weekend with uh, another panel of local journalists to discuss the topics of the day and give you a little insight from behind the headlines. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you guys very much for taking the time. Thank you.